Hey everyone, this is your podcast producer, Casey Callanan. I just wanted to let you know that today's interview with Carissa M. Cooney is accompanied by some PowerPoint presentations, and all of those slides, along with the interview, are going to be available in YouTube. I know you're listening to the audio version right now, but if you want the accompanying slides to today's presentation please check out the description of this podcast because there will be a link to the YouTube version of it, which has all the visual elements of the discussion. Welcome to the Faculty Factory Podcast, everyone. I'm Kim Skorupski here at Hopkins. On today's episode, we have a special joint collaborative project between the Faculty Factory and Hopkins Office of Faculty Development. I'm so pleased to welcome Carissa Cooney, an associate professor and the director of education innovation and the director of clinical research core at the Department of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery here at Johns Hopkins. Hi, Carissa. Hi, Kim. How are you? Good. Well, everybody, this is a really great presentation, and we thought we'd do a joint celebration of this content today. We want to share it not only with the Hopkins community, but with the International Faculty Factory Podcast community. And Carissa's done a really interesting and very important presentation that she's given to a couple of audiences here at Hopkins. And it's been so widely acclaimed and celebrated that we really wanted to share it with a broader audience. And the title of her talk is Evolving Personally and Professionally to Maintain Job Satisfaction. In it for the long haul. So Carissa, again, welcome to the Faculty Factory Podcast. Thank you so much for doing this for the wider Office of Faculty Development community, the whole School of Medicine, as well as the podcast land. We'll let you take over from now. Well, thank you so much. It's really a privilege to be able to be on this podcast. Um, I've really gotten a lot out of listening to it myself, so I can't believe I'm actually on it. So I will just proceed with the talk. We have some disclosures that aren't relevant, but do want to let you know like the objectives of the talk today are to be able to differentiate between fluid and crystallized intelligence, identify ways to affect behavioral change to benefit your personal and professional relationships, and then also to understand how negative self-talk versus self-compassion can impact personal learning and growth. And so how I got onto this topic was during 2022, I was looking through, you know, doing some cross-reading in the literature, and I'm a big fan of the Harvard Business School's basically newsletter. And so this article came up, and it was, When Working Harder Doesn't Work, Time to Reinvent Your Career. And I thought, oh, I am clicking on that, because that really resonated. And it made me think back to 2020, when I heard my department chair say, never have I worked so hard to accomplish so little. And I knew that this was really resonating with a lot of people around Hopkins. So then in 2021, of course, we were faced with the great resignation or the great retirement. This put a lot of pressure on those of us who, you know, continued in the workspace. How are we covering our own work as well as the work of, you know, our peers who are no longer here? And then in 2022, we were looking at this concept of quiet quitting, which, you know, there's some argument is this good, is this bad? But one can argue that Quiet quitting is actually setting up some boundaries to try to do a better job of taking care of ourselves and limiting our scope creep. So the article made me, it referred back to Arthur Brooks' uh, book, From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. And looking at that really also made me think of the second book um, by Marshall Goldsmith, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. 
And then coincidentally, I was talking with another colleague of mine, Jennifer Alicia, and she mentioned a third book, which is Good Morning, I Love You, Mindfulness and Self-Compassion Practices to Rewire Your Brain for Calm, Clarity, and Joy by Shauna Shapiro. And what I really liked about these three books was that they were getting to this same place of trying to improve yourself based on data, which again was something that really spoke to me in particular as a researcher. And so I was able to look at these books and see how they would triangulate to get to this place of just self-love and improvement. And so if we think about like how this applies, coming through COVID, it was, it's been really tough. And I think if you find that you're still struggling, even though we're supposedly out of the pandemic, it's okay. Like a lot of us are still having a hard time. And if we just think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, this really can apply to our work environment as well. And so for us at Hopkins, this is really difficult. When we think about physiological needs, our cafeterias have been closed for like six months now. And so physicians, surgeons, residents, and patients cannot get food easily or in a timely fashion. And boy, that makes for some crabby people to work with and patients to see. But then when we go up to the next level and we see, you know, safety needs, do we have the right personal protective equipment? You know, do we have economic and job security? And then we're still living, you know, in this environment of gun and racial and political violence. So this is this stuff is for real and it is still happening. So if you're you're still struggling, despite the fact that COVID is over, you're not alone. And so when we think about being able to be comfortable and happy in our work, we have to have our physiological needs met, you know, in terms of the workspace. We need to have our safety needs met before we can really get to the point of feeling like, hey, I fit in. I feel included. I'm on board with our organizational purpose. And then at that point, can you start to think, well, I feel respected by my colleagues. You get to that esteem level. I feel free to pursue my interests. And that's the point at which you can really become your best self with a self-actualization piece. So I believe this still applies to us in our work environment. And so the objective today is as we emerge from a really difficult period, I wanted to review some data-based research in order to help show you ways to improve personal and professional satisfaction and happiness, to identify concepts and methods to improve personal and professional satisfaction and happiness, and then also to improve your compassion that you have for yourself as well as for others. And so looking at our first book, From Strength to Strength, the uh, general thesis of this is intelligence changes over time. And so we have fluid intelligence and crystallized intelligence. And the thing that we need to think about here is it's better really to adapt to rather than fight this change, because adapting to that, accepting that can lead to growth and fulfillment. But what is the problem with this? Um, surgeons, academicians, researchers, high achievers, you know, being high achieving, being highly intelligent you generally identify yourselves with your job. You know, so many people say, I am a plastic surgeon. I am a surgeon scientist. I am a cardiothoracic surgeon at Johns Hopkins. And what this does though, is it ties your identity to your job. And so then if you are no longer able to do that job, if you are in decline in your profession, you're at risk of losing your identity. So that's what we need to be careful of, that we don't solely identify with our career path. We have concerns that as our intelligence changes in our lifetimes, you know, we lose esteem, our legacy may become threatened. And one of the big scary things is that we might actually even be forgotten. 
And so when we talk about fluid intelligence versus crystallized intelligence, what is this? And so fluid intelligence is more prevalent earlier in your life or earlier in your career. And it's being able to think and reason abstractly, solve problems. And it's an ability that is considered independent of learning, experience, and education. So this is generally thought of as your raw smarts. And so then when you go to crystallized intelligence, this is the intelligence that is more prevalent later in your career and in your life. And so this is knowledge that comes from prior learning and past experiences. And it's based upon facts and rooted in those experiences. So we generally think of this as wisdom. So here's the bad news. As you're going through life, your fluid intelligence, your raw smarts, it tops out about your early 30s and then starts to decline. Well, what does that correlate with in medical training when you're finally out of residency? So here you've worked your whole life to become the thing that you want to be. And now you feel like your raw smarts is in decline. Well, the good news is that your crystallized intelligence continues to increase over time. And so that's where that concept of it's it's good to accept that this change is going to happen and work with it, take advantage of it so that you can grow personally and professionally. Okay, what's another problem with this scenario? So someone in plastic surgery in particular, I feel a little bit sensitive about this, but American society tends to value youth. And so how do we get back to valuing our esteemed elders? Because that's really what the wisdom and the crystallized intelligence is about. And so our responsibilities change with age. And these range all over the place, right? Family, kids, aging parents, your elders that you're trying to help take care of, your financial obligations. Chances are when you were in residency, you know, maybe you didn't have a car payment. Maybe you were renting a house and not didn't have a mortgage. And let alone like later in life, you're sending kids to college um, or trying to get additional education yourself. And you're also taking on different roles in your work organization. And so the idea here that you should be able to do something with the same alacrity that you did in your 20s or 30s when you're in your 40s or 50s is kind of silly because you're not the same person and you don't have the same level of stress or responsibility in your life. And so we need to understand the value of crystallized intelligence. It's not worth less than fluid intelligence and can be complementary. And this is really a strength when we build multi- um, you know, our diverse teams, because the crystallized intelligence folks can really give the context that our brilliant, you know, fluid intelligence folks need in order to really get a, an idea that's going to be important and impactful. So when we're finding meaning in the second half of life, there are suggestions that Mr. Brooks offers for pivoting. And in your professional life, these come down to things like you can move to teaching and mentoring, to building things, like you've become more familiar with your you know, work environment. And so you can figure out how to put these pieces together or how to make the connections to make these you know, institutes and things happen. You can identify weaknesses as areas for growth. You should try to let go of your need for prestige. By letting that go, you will increase your prestige. You can become service oriented. And something that's very important is don't be punitive with your juniors. If something was hard for you, don't necessarily make it hard for someone else coming up because that can be incredibly destructive. So when you think about your personal life, things that you can pivot in the second half of life are perhaps you know further expanding on your spiritual spirituality or religiosity. Um, a lot of people find comfort in this, and there can be friend networks that are built in there, activities. 
certainly you want to work on your relationships with your family and friends. And this is um, emphasized in many you know, different data studies that having those larger networks with connections is going to help keep your brain young and it's going to give you better quality of life. Clearly, you want to exercise and take care of your health. In America, we tend to have longer lifespans. And you want to make sure you have as good a quality of life for as long as possible in that life. So really take care of your health. You want to engage in hobbies. And these are things that are going to help you establish an identity for what you love to do outside of your professional responsibilities and identity. Meditation is something that folks find helpful as well. And then this last one, it's a little bit heavy. It's about pondering your death. And the idea is that actually thinking about death and what that might mean for the life that you've lived so far will help make that less scary and help you make harder decisions, more approachable with these harder decisions. And so the question that I would pose here is, you think about if I die tomorrow, would I be okay with what I'm leaving behind? And I honestly hope that if your answer is no, that you look at that carefully and rethink what's happening and really seriously consider making a pivot. So when we look at then both the professional and personal spaces, we want to work on doing a good job of accepting our decline, because again, we can welcome that and find areas for growth and accept change, which is hard, but we're capable of doing that. And if we can get to that acceptance level, it makes us more approachable and it makes us happier. Final thoughts for From Strength to Strength are as certain strengths decline, just own it. New strengths are going to emerge. Um, We want to shift to and embrace those new strengths. And then this retains you as a critical contributor to the team, just in a new role, right? And that is appropriate as our skills and our knowledge base evolve. All right, so our next book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. So the thesis of this book is that Behaviors that were rewarded by past successes can become limitations to future growth. And so being open to feedback can change your life. And it is pretty common for people to get stuck. Um, Success breeds selection bias. You think, hey, this is the winning package. I've gotten so far, this is going to continue to work. But that's not necessarily true. And so as you ascend in rank, You have to think about how your comments may carry a different weight or more weight with the people that you're mentoring or the people that you're in charge of. And so uh, Mr. Marshall, he does say uh, that doctors are the most delusional. And he, if you've read his book, he does quote a passage where he's he's at a meeting in front of a room full of doctors. And he says, you know, 50% of doctors who graduate from medical school graduate in the lower half of their class. And this one doctor gets up and says, that's not true. I disagree. And it's just math. So, you know, so be humble. You're a doctor. You're well-educated. You're one of the most well-educated person in the world. But we're still human. And just because you're a doctor doesn't mean you're good at math. And then common responses to feedback and critique, you know, one of the problems that we can have is that this criticism doesn't apply to us because that that person doesn't like me. So I'm just going to disregard that comment. I don't need to change. I'm good or you attack the other person. And so I have this quote from our good Dr. Jessica Beanstock, which is really great. She's our Associate Dean for Graduate Medical Education at Johns Hopkins. And she said, remember that the distance between you and someone who is in leadership always looks longer when you are looking up than it does to the leader with whom you are talking. So meaning as we ascend in rank, 
we still feel that we are that new kid on the block who was fighting the fight to get to where we are, to get on the committee, to be heard and all this. But to that person who we're mentoring, it looks like a long way up. And so in this book, they're also mentioned 20 bad habits. And I'm not going to read all of these, um, but they are good to run through. These are challenges to interpersonal behaviors. And so I have circled a few that I wanted to uh, point out that can be common, you know, in a fierce academic environment. So one is making destructive comments. You know, it's common, like if you're frustrated or somebody else comes up with a good idea, you just want to tear it apart because you're jealous because you didn't think of it first. So try to resist that temptation. Another one is negativity or let me explain why that won't work. And in my job, you know, my responsibility is to help people write, edit papers, write, edit grants. And so my job is actually to try to pick things apart, not to be destructive, but to make it so that when it goes to review, we're going to sail through. And so if that is a part of your job, make sure that you're, you're striking that balance so that your juniors understand why you're taking that approach. Another one here is refusing to express regret. If any of you have someone in your life who refuses to apologize or apologizes really poorly, I have a, a close relative who is really terrible at apologies. And I've just had to accept this because she is not going to change. But try not to be that person because that can be incredibly hurtful if you're not able to express regret. Not listening. That's a big one in all aspects of our lives. An excessive need to be me. And again, I think that's, you know, coming from this potentially destructive feedback of success. I've been successful. I don't need to change. Well, maybe let's rethink that. And so how can you get improve yourself? And so there are different ways to get feedback. And the first one is active. You can ask a trusted friend. The idea with a trusted friend is somebody who really doesn't have any skin in the game in terms of how your behaviors are going to change. The thing that they want is just for you to be happy, you for you to be your best self. So that would be the trusted friend. Another way to do this is enlist feedback from colleagues or people who work for you. Um, however, you have to create a safe space for them to give you honest feedback, because if they feel that their paycheck is on the line, they are not going to give you honest feedback. You can also ask your family, like your kids, partner, spouse, this can be pretty painful, though. Like if you have some observant kids, the feedback that they give you can be pretty sharp. So once again, make this a safe space. That whole thing, like, does this dress make me look fat? That's a lose-lose. So make sure when you ask the question, you're ready to hear what they have to say. And that's the fourth point. Listen to what the people that you ask for feedback, listen to what they have to say. Don't interrupt. Just keep your mouth shut. Now, if you're not ready for active feedback, you can do passive feedback, because certainly you have to be ready for this feedback before you start looking for it or asking for it. And so one way you can do passive feedback is to keep your ears open for a day or a week or so, and just write down all the comments that you overhear people make about you or that they actually make to you about your different behaviors. You can label these positive or negative. The other thing you can do is turn the sound off. And so the idea here is to listen to behavior or not to words. When you have in-person meetings, this can be a really good practice because people's body language will tell you how comfortable they are around you or how interested they are in your comments. If they're leaning towards you, their eyes are open, they're you know making eye contact. These are all really good signs. If their bodies are turned away, they refuse to make eye contact. You might be doing something that's turning people off. Another thing you can do is complete the sentence. And so the idea here is the first part of the sentence starts with, I want to X. 
And so if I do this, then I will blank. So there's no right or wrong answer here. The idea is to just kind of get your mind working and, and see what comes out. So a good one is I want to become a better listener. So if I stop talking as much, I will more clearly hear what my trainees need me to do for them. That's a huge revelation. So this one works surprisingly well. And then listen to your own self-aggrandizing or self-deprecating remarks. I do have a colleague who uses self-deprecating remarks quite a bit. And honestly, when this person does it, it's very funny. So for that person, it's not a problem. But if you're doing this because you're trying to like get people to say, oh, add a boy, add a girl, add a you, that's when it's potentially going to fall flat. So be careful about how you're using this kind of language. And then look homeward. Chances are your flaws at work don't vanish once you go through the front door. Well, again, going back to that thing where you ask your kids, you come in the door, hey, I'm home, and everybody scatters. <laughs> Headphones are on, they're going to their rooms. You might want to think about how you're acting when you get to the house. So next, you want to make sure you're acting on this feedback. So we want to determine if the trait is perceived as a problem. If it's not a problem, you don't have to you know, necessarily do anything about it. If it is problematic, the first step is to apologize. And you want to do that sincerely. The next thing you want to do is advertise. You want to tell those around you, I'm trying to make a change. And this is what I'm trying to fix. Because if they don't understand that you're trying to make a change, they won't appreciate it. They can't, right? They don't know what's going on. The next thing you want to do is have these folks that work with you. You're going to recruit them to help you make a change. So you're going to ask for their help. If they're engaged in the process and it's a safe thing for them to do, it's going to be really helpful. It's also going to make them pay attention to what you're doing and appreciate any change you are able to affect. So when they help, you also have to thank them and be consistent and persistent. So, you know, one of the things that's really frustrating is when you're at your institution and a new edict comes out, you hear it once and then it's gone and you never hear about it ever again. So if you're going to do this, commit. If you're not ready, don't go here yet. Be consistent and persistent. And this can take months, years to really make a change. So some additional steps include follow-up and feed-forward. And these are pretty interesting concepts. Most people are going to be familiar with follow-up. That is to regularly ask others, you know, how am I doing? And this can be like a monthly check-in. Again, it's got to be a safe space for that person to give honest feedback. And the purpose is to see if you are changing. And then if you are, cause others to see that you are changing. Because what you're trying to do is change your behavior so that you have a better interaction with these people around you, whether it's your family or your coworkers or your boss. And then you want to remind them, well, thank you for that feedback. You know, I just want you to know I'm still trying and I so appreciate you being involved in this process. And then the next one is feed forward. This one's pretty interesting. You're going to pick one behavior that you want to change for a positive difference. And you can describe that objective to change in one-on-one -on -one dialogue with anyone. So this can be someone at the bus stop. This can be the person in line in the cafeteria. It can be a good friend. And you're going to ask this person for two suggestions on how to improve in the future. They can't, if they know you, they can't mention your past behavior. This is just going forward. When they tell you, you say, thank you. And then you can repeat this process as needed. The important thing here is to listen to what this person has to say, whoever they are. Because you can get some really interesting insight and, and new points of view, you know, particularly by asking people that you don't know. And then you can always, if you listen, you can think about it and say, well, I don't think that's really going to apply to me. It was interesting. It just doesn't apply. Or, wow, that one, very insightful. I'm going to act on that. So eight rules that can help you change. 
First one is behavioral change may not fix your professional problem. So the changes that we're talking about here are just in your, your affect or how you're striking other people. So if you don't have the ability to do a job, this kind of process is not really going to help. And then you only want to pick one to two habits that changing will bring the biggest benefit. This is already a lot. Understand that it takes courage to change and time and energy and effort. And so it's important that you are ready to take this on. Be open to candid feedback, even if it's, it might sting. And this process, it is not about being perfect. That's the, the whole point of, I'm. thank you, I'm trying to change, I'm trying to do better. You don't have to be perfect. And to change behavior, we need to measure it. So how are you going to say, you know, am I 5% better, 10% better? People are happier. I'm seeing more, I'm seeing 8% more smiles. However you want to measure this, what yardstick are you going to use? Sometimes monetizing the results can help accelerate behavior change. I know last year, my group of fellows, they tended to say like some negative comments. Uh, One person in particular, she was trying to change her behavior. Good for her. And so she had a negative comment money jar. And so I could tell if she had had a bad week because she'd be like, okay, I guess I'm buying lunch today for the rest of the team. And monetizing it will help you realize, wow, I have said a lot of negative things or, hey, I'm doing really great this week. Somebody gets to buy me lunch. And then the best time to change, this is the last point, the best time to change is now and now and now. It's never too late. So general good approaches from this book saying thank you can go a long way. It doesn't matter who it is, right? The person who gives you your coffee, the person who helps you get a grant, saying thank you, you know, your spouse handing you a coat, you know, in the morning or finding your keys, saying thank you goes a long way. Apologize when you mess up. I'm sorry. I'll try to do better in the future. But make sure you mean these things because insincere thank yous or insincere apologies are going to be more damaging. So be sincere. Others can tell when they when you don't mean it. Be present. So if you're having a meeting, please don't also be doing email. Don't also be on the phone. You know, one of the things that I will do, sometimes I have to finish up an email as someone's coming into my office for an appointment. And I said, I'm so sorry. Let me, if I can just have one or two more minutes, finish this email, then you will have my full attention. And people appreciate that. They understand. And then the last thing is to listen and really listen. Try not to interrupt. And then rephrasing what someone has said to you to make sure that you've understood it can also be a great part of listening and really cement what they've told you into your mind. Last book. And this is Good Morning, I Love You. The thesis of this book is that people are hardwired to be self-critical and negative. And cultivating an attitude of kindness and compassion towards ourselves is key. When we think about mindfulness, and I have to admit, I'm one of those people who used to think this was all mamby-pamby, oh, let's all hold hands and sing kumbaya. It really isn't. When we think about mindfulness, this is about what we practice And then what we practice is what's going to grow stronger. Just like you go to the gym, if you only do your biceps, then your triceps are going to go all waggly, waggly. So what we practice grows stronger. And so the question is, what are you practicing? Are you practicing judgment or frustration? You know, like somebody comes to your office and they're like, why is that guy always good to me? I don't understand. That's not really the most constructive way for you to, to, to process that interaction that you found frustrating. And so what this author really recommends and through data is that you should approach these situations with curiosity 
and seeking understanding in order to get to healing. If that same person comes in, why, why is it that I always let that guy get it, take advantage of me? I really got to think about this. So the next time he comes in, I don't let that happen. I got to do this for me. Why? What is it? What's the technique here? You can really learn something that way. And so this is not just about paying attention, but it's about how we pay attention, you know, how present we are and thinking about what aspect of myself do I want to grow? We want to stay away from self-flagellation, shame. You know, these things don't actually work. The data has shown us that this turns off the learning centers in the brain and prevents growth. Um, so a lot of us may have got, you know, to where we are by bootstrapping and saying, oh, I could get up. I could keep doing this. You know, oh. But really thinking that myself, up, oh, this is going to be okay. I can keep going. So kindness and curiosity are what are going to promote growth. And so there's essentially three aspects to this mindfulness. The first one is intention, which is what do I care about? The second one is attention, and that's going to train and stabilize your mind in the present moment. And then the third one is attitude, which is how we pay attention. And so when we talk about intention, you ask yourself, what do I care about? And so to get here, you can ask yourself what you want to find or what you want to do better. And there's a great question here, which is in what direction do I want to set the compass of my heart? This is a really powerful question, and you may feel silly, but I would encourage you to just say that to yourself right now. In what direction do I want to set the compass of my heart? Because even saying that can make you think, I need to spend more time with my kids. You know, I need to write that paper that I've been working on for so long that I deserve to get out there because I've worked so hard on that research, whatever it is. This is not a mental activity to pick the right answer. There's no right answer. And this can change. And then the simple act of choosing your intention can increase your happiness. And, you know, if you think about when you've had to make a really difficult decision, it's all of that hard decision making and data gathering and all that stuff up until you make the decision. And then as soon as you make the decision, you're like, and so choosing an intention is similar. So next, when we look at attention, this is when we are training and stabilizing our minds in the present moment. And so the human mind wanders 47% of the time. Practice is needed to maintain your attention. You want to be able to acknowledge the feelings that you're having when you're paying attention. You may have physical or mental discomfort that you need to get through. And it's quite possible that if you are not paying attention to how you're feeling, you're just ignoring this. Like you're pushing this aside and it's probably going to come out, you know, maybe in a not great stressful time when you can't really control your behavior. So we do want to pay attention. Oh, I'm, I'm hurting today. I got to be gentle with myself. And you want to gain the ability by paying attention. You're going to gain the ability to respond and not to react to that dude that always gets your goat. And so finally, when we look at attitude, this is how we pay attention. And so are we paying attention with judgment, with self-deprecation, or even when we succeed? Oh, well, anybody could have done that. You know, I'm just I'm just doing what I need to do. No, I got that grant. Good for me. This is this is amazing. Self-deprecation, again, pretty self-destructive. And you don't want to beat yourself up to learn a lesson. So I would say don't do these things. Instead, when we pay attention, we want to do it with self-compassion, curiosity, acceptance, and accountability. Mindfulness is not about making excuses 
and not being responsible for your behavior or, or the repercussions of your actions, right? It is about accountability and making a change so that you're more mindful, you know, to be more respectful, um, be happier moving forward. So what's the good news? Because we heard that stuff about fluid intelligence and crystallized intelligence. And now we're getting a, you know, I don't know, is it possible for me to change? It is because it's neuroplasticity, right? It's science. So it's possible to change the brain throughout life. You can always map new pathways. And then what uh, Ms. Shapiro said, or Dr. Shapiro says in the book is neurons that fire together, wire together. So just like when you're working out and building muscles, or if you're learning Zumba, you know, you're going to remember those moves better. It's the same way with these uh, behaviors and this learning to be kinder to ourselves. Transformation is possible. I think the important thing here is thinking about micro goals. So can I do a 5% improvement, you know, a 1% improvement? Oh, today I'm feeling pretty good. How about 8%? Um, or even I'm having a terrible day. I'm just going to focus on not backsliding. And you know what? That is a win. You know, if you're having a terrible, stressful event, either professionally or personally or both, just not backsliding is a win. And perfection is unattainable. It's the antithesis of evolution. I would also say perfection is boring. You know, and there's lots of quotes about perfection, right? Perfection is the enemy of good, like lots of different things. So don't worry about perfection. Getting better, people appreciate that. You will appreciate it. Okay, so some common threads through these books. External changes often do not lead to lasting happiness. So if you're like, oh, I'm going to be happy once I get that fancy sports car. Well, maybe. I'm going to be happy once I get the really big house with the four extra bedrooms I don't need. Oh, maybe. Hopefully you have a good, you know, cleaning person. But, you know, but really think about families, relationships. If you're working, the other thing is like once you buy more things and you have to work more to earn more money to afford the things that you've bought, chances are that cycle is going to cause you to move away from your relationships. Changing your behavior and your brain can lead to increased happiness. And you can change at any time. You need to be motivated to change, and it does require effort. So please don't look at that lightly. Um, or if you're struggling with change, you know, that's okay. It's hard. Your brain and your responsibilities are also going to change over time. If you can greet those changes with self-compassion and curiosity and acceptance, then these are important steps towards continued growth and happiness. All right, so I do have an epilogue, and the person I'm actually going to have uh, read a poem that's a recording is uh, Sylvia Borstein, and she is just one of our esteemed elders that we were talking about earlier. She has this lovely voice. She's a coach, um, and she's an expert on getting advice on raising children. And so she reads this beautiful poem by uh, Pablo Neruda called Keeping Quiet. And so I just want to play that for you now. So if you are multitasking, which it's okay. Everybody does it. We understand you guys are busy. I would ask you to just please set aside what you're doing. This is only a 90 second poem. Take a breath and listen. Just be present for this. This is called Keeping Quiet. Now we will count to 12 and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines, 
we would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of frightening ourselves with death. Now I'll count up to 12, and you keep quiet, and I will go. So thank you very much. Carissa Cooney, Associate Professor, Director of Education Innovation, Director, Clinical Research Corps, in the Department of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery here at Johns Hopkins. Thank you, Carissa. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.